We're in this series, 2 Corinthians, and so we've been journeying verse by verse, line by line, word by word, uh, through the book of 2 Corinthians. And I know you're going to find this hard to believe, but we're finally finishing 2 Corinthians. Next weekend will be the last message. So we've 22 weeks we've camped out in in the book of 2 Corinthians, and maybe you're new to Fellowship of the Rockies, and that's kind of new to you. Uh, one of the reasons that we take a book of the Bible and we walk all the way through it is forces us to deal with the whole counsel of God's Word, uh, the things that are easy to preach and the things that are not easy to preach, uh, the things that are easy to hear and the things that are not easy to hear. And it forces us to deal with all of those subjects of Scripture. So for the last 21 weeks, uh, we've been journeying through 2 Corinthians. And so we come to this topic that Paul had really been starting talking about in, in 1 Corinthians. And it's, it, it's been a thread all the way and now. 2 Corinthians, he is like, this is his last letter to them. This is his last opportunity. And he just bears his soul of some things that he's concerned about for them. And so 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 11 through 22, if you have your Bibles, electronic devices, you can click to, turn to. If not, the words are going to come up on the screen as I read them, as we read the scriptures together. The title of this message is, is The Problem of Immaturity. And so Paul was concerned about this. He was, pro- he was concerned about the immaturity in the local church. And so we know this, right? Emotional maturity, your emotional maturity affects your spiritual maturity. Uh, The way you handle conflict, the way you handle disappointment, the way you handle relationships, all of those things, your emotional maturity, listen, your emotional maturity affects your spiritual maturity. Sometimes it has nothing to do with your spiritual maturity. It all has to do with your emotional maturity. The way you handle situations, the way you handle relationships. So Paul's concerned about this. And Paul's concerned about how they're going to finish the race and how they're going to finish their Christian life. And, and so, I, so I, I was reading an article here a while back about the Indianapolis 500. And people that have witnessed the Indianapolis 500 say there's nothing more exciting and spectacular to witness than the start of an Indy 500. When you have 33, like, you know, those low, sleek vehicles coming around turn four at 200 miles an hour, headed to the checkered flag, the stands are like, stand, they're, they're standing, they're cheering, uh, the roar of the engines, the, the, the flag is dropped and the race starts. Many people that have witnessed that and many people that have been in the grandstand say there's nothing more exciting, nothing more spectacular, spectacular than to witness the start of an Indy 500 race. But we know this. We know that only about 50% of the cars are going to finish the race. Somewhere between 16 to 20 cars are going to actually finish the race. Many of the cars are going to get knocked out along the way. Whether it's a rack or whether it's engine failure, whether it's, whether it's a gearbox failure, whether it's a, a fuel issue, a tire issue. Uh, whether, whether I mean, it can be something as little as like a $10 bolt. And it knocks somebody out of the race. And so as impressive is an Indianapolis 500 the start of the race is the more important part is how you finish the race, right? A financial reward does not go to those that only start the race well, but the ones that end end the race well. And so as a result of that, you have a pit crew and you have a driver that work together making course adjustments along the way. Why? So that they finish the race well. And so this is what Paul's concerned about. Paul's concerned that there are Christians that do not finish well, that something happens in their life. One, one, of, the, one of the most famous characteristics is in the, characters is in the Old Testament. His name's Solomon. And Solomon started out his life with God well, but something happened in his life that wrecked him along the way. It was like compromise. And Solomon writes these words in Ecclesiastes. And every time I read these words, they're so sobering to me. 
that Solomon writes and says, it's not so much how you start out in life, but how you finish in life. And that's encouraging to people like me that met Christ late in their life, right? And you realize that, you know what, whether you're raised in a spiritual home or not, it really doesn't matter because it doesn't matter how you started out. It matters how you end up, how you finish life well. In the New Testament, Paul was worried about this guy. In fact, as you can read about him in 2 Corinthians, his name's Demas. And Demas once was a partner in ministry with Paul. But Paul would say that Demas did me much harm. He loved this present world more than he loved the Word, more than he loved the Lord. And as a result of that, he wandered away. So when you look at this, it's not enough just to start out the Christian life well. We need, listen, we need to plan. We need to plan for finishing well. It's not impressive at the beginning, but it's impressive at the faithful end. And some Christians have been knocked out of the race dramatically because there was a, a wreck along the way, and others have just kind of coasted to the sidelines, whether it was betrayal, whether it was hurt, whether it was disappointment or something that they walked through. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, he just says these words. He says, For my part, brothers and sisters, so now we know he's referring to Christians, he said, I was not able to speak to you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as babies in Christ. So now Paul's concerned about two groups of people in his church. He's concerned about the spiritually immature. He refers to them as babies. I wanted to talk to you as mature Christians. I couldn't because you're spiritually immature. And then he's talking about people of the flesh. And what he's talking about there, he's talking about people that are going back to their old way of life, people that are trusting their old way of life more than they're trusting in the Lord. And so he comes. He comes to this place in 2 Corinthians, and he refers to these people, people of the flesh, that love the world more than they love the spirit world, and, 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 and these people that are spiritually immature. And, and so if we're not careful, if we're honest, if we're not careful, we can slowly drift. And we need to be aware of the warning signs, just like a pit crew and a race car driver in the Indianapolis 500, when all of a sudden there's danger signs, when lights are coming up on a dashboard, when warning lights are going off, that all of a sudden they realize that I may not finish well and I need to make course correction. This is what Paul is talking about. So Paul gives them four things. And listen, I'm telling you, this sermon was not only hard to write, but it's going to be hard to listen to. And this is one of the reasons why we walk through Scripture is because we can take these things of Scripture and apply them to our life. So the first thing he gives that you and I know when we are drifting, when you and I know that like we're losing altitude, is when there's a decreased appreciation for spiritual leaders. When all of a sudden in our life, there's like this decreased appreciation for spiritual leaders. Now listen, let me tell you something. On this principle, when I use the term spiritual leaders, I really struggled with that. Because there's a lot of church people that like when you read this and you say, oh, there's decreased appreciation for spiritual leaders. People say, oh, I know what he's talking about. He's talking about pastors. No, I'm not talking about pastors. Yeah, pastors are in, in that. But what Paul is talking about, he's talking about a spiritual leader would be anybody that's contributed to your spiritual life. That may be a mom or a dad. That may be a friend. That may be someone that's mentored you. That may be a life group leader. That may be a Bible study teacher. That may be a ministry partner in the student ministry, the children's ministry. That may be an usher. That may be an uh, elder, uh, a deacon. That may be someone that's taken you on a mission trip. That may be someone that shared Christ with you. That may be someone that has encouraged you or mentored you along the way. So please, please, it's not just a pastor. Yeah, they're in that group. But something happens when there's no longer an appreciation for people that have spiritually contributed to your life. So here we go. He goes, verse 11. He says, have I, 
I have been a fool, and you forced, me, forced it on me. You ought to have commended me since I'm not in any way inferior to the super apostles, even though I am nothing. And so now then you see that Paul is like losing his mind because they, they, they really don't appreciate him. Instead of commending him, they're, they're like forcing him to prove that he's really an apostle. I mean, they're praising these false apostles. They're praising these false prophets. They're praising these what he would call super apostles. And they're criticizing him. One of the characteristics of spiritual maturity is when there's an appreciation for the people around you that have spiritually contributed to your life, have poured into your life. And Paul is coming to this place and saying, you know what? There ought to be this reciprocal love. I love you and I want the best for you. And there ought to be this reciprocal love back. And Paul says, I have been a fool. And he feels kind of foolish because he's having to go back and he's having to prove his credentials and he's having to give his resume to them once again. And and even though he was a humble man and even though he worked hard for them and he, he never really bragged about himself, he didn't use them, he didn't exploit them for financial gain. And you realize that he's just kind of frustrated. Verse 12, he says... The signs of an apostle, so he says, hey, and just, just so you're clear, here are the signs of an apostle. Were performed with unfailing endurance among you. Now he's talking about himself. He says, you know what? I performed the functions of an apostle with unfailing endurance before you, including signs and wonders and miracles. One of the signs of an apostle in their day was a person being able to, to perform miracles, to heal people, to raise the dead, to speak in languages that were unknown or never been studied before. And Paul's saying, you know what? I've done all of those things. I've done every one of those things, and, 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 and I've done them. I've done them consistently. Not only that, he says, I've been generous. I have never demanded a salary. I'm not even taking a salary from the Corinthian church. Paul, with all these churches that he had planted, established, and started, He got them to fund his financial arrangements to pay his salary because he was worried in Corinth. It was such a pagan culture, and there was never a a Christian work there until him. He was worried that this pagan culture would say he's trying to use them, exploit them. He wanted to be able to say, you guys aren't even paying me, verse 13. So in in that way, you are... So in what way are you worse off than the other churches except that I personally did not burden you. Forgive me for this wrong. Look, I am ready to come to you this third time. I will not burden you since I am not seeking what is yours, but I am seeking you. For children ought not save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So now all of a sudden you see his frustration. They're like criticizing him. Instead of commending him, appreciating him, they are criticizing him. And he lays it all out on the table, right? He says, you know what? I view myself as your spiritual dad. I view yourself as, my, as your spiritual father in, uh, in guiding you and taking care of you. And because he, he uses this principle, he says, because after all, parents should provide for their children. The children should not provide for their parents. And we, we, we know that, right? I mean, as I've raised two daughters and now they're adults and, and they have husbands and they have, and they have kids, we have grandkids, and so all the way through their life, when we, when, we, when we go out to eat, when we meet at a restaurant and we go out to eat, and the waitress or the waiter comes and puts the ticket down on the table, nobody flinches, right? Nobody moves. I mean, it's everybody just kind of looks straight ahead. It's just kind of assumed that, guess what? Dad's going to pay for this. Dad's going to take care of this. Nobody even, they don't even act like, like, like you, you fight over the bill. They don't even go through that. 
They don't even move. And you know what? I, listen, I don't mind. I don't mind paying for my kids. The fact is, it, I, I enjoy that, of being able to provide for them. But you know what? From time to time, I would like for them to appreciate it, right? And all the parents said, amen, right? We want them just to come to the place. And this is what Paul's doing. Paul's like, hey, I'm like your spiritual dad. I don't mind footing the bill. I don't mind paying for you. I don't mind taking care of it. But you know what? I would like a thank you every once in a while. I would like for you to appreciate that. And Paul had gone out and gotten other people, right, to support. He wasn't even taking a salary. See, immature Christians. Just telling you. Immature Christians, nothing you can ever do sometimes can make them happy, right? Spiritual immaturity, emotional immaturity, there is just like nothing you can, I mean, no, no matter what Paul did. No matter what Paul did, they complained. Uh, verse 14, he says, look, am I ready to come to you this third time? I will not burden you since I am not seeking what is yours but you. For children ought not save for their parents but parents for their children. And so they're accusing Paul of exploiting them. Verse 15, I will most gladly spend and be spent for you. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? And Paul is like, you know what? It should be reciprocal. It should be this reciprocal relationship. There should be this sense of appreciation. Immaturity in life is not appreciating people that have contributed to you. Where you think the world revolves around you and think that, you know what, they're just obligated to do that. They're just supposed to do that. Paul is talking about this issue of spiritual maturity is when we come to the place. And we appreciate the people that have contributed to our life spiritually. Saturday morning I was thinking about this concept and I was thinking, well, you know what? Have I? Have I appreciated properly the people that have contributed to my spiritual life? And who is that? And like I told you at the start, when I use that principle that, that, that about spiritual leaders, it's not just pastors. It's anybody that's contributed to your life spiritually. And I remember when I came to faith in Christ and the church that I, the church that I was attending, yes, I came to faith in Christ under uh, Dr. John Bazzano's preaching, and that meant a lot to me. But there was this man in our church named David Hill. David Hill was radically saved by Jesus. I mean, he had been in jail for everything you could be in jail for except for murder, and he was kind of proud about it. He never did that. And so, uh, <laughs> and so God had radically changed his life. And he came alongside of me, and he mentored me. He, he, he opened up Scripture with me, and I, I still remember the first time he ever opened up the Bible. and said, Charlie, if you're a Christian, you need to read the Bible. All good Christians read Scripture. And he taught me how. I still remember when he opened up the Bible, his Bible for the, for, for the first time. It was like falling apart. I mean, I mean, Scripture was highlighted, was underlined. There were notes in the margin. Pages were falling out. Pages were missing, missing where he witnessed someone and just ripped the page out of his Bible and gave it to him. And, and that's a crazy concept. And you know what? I wanted to be like David Hill. I started reading Scripture because David Hill read Scripture. Fact is, I bought a Bible exactly like David Hill's Bible because he mentored me. He taught me to read Scripture. He taught me this love of Scripture. And David didn't, didn't let it end there. David would call me during the week, and I was single at the time. I'm living in an apartment. And he would call me, and the first thing he would do, I'd go, hello. And he goes, are, are you in the Word? I mean, are you in the Word? Fact is, at one point, because I, I didn't want to say no, and so, because, you know, I'm like just learning. And so at one point, I, I thought about, excuse me, I thought about naming my apartment in the Word. 
So no matter when he called, I said, David, I'm in the Word. fact is, I live in the Word. And I wouldn't be lying, you know. And so, but you know what? That didn't work out so well. And then, because you know what David would say? He says, you're in the Word? I'd say, yeah, I'm in the Word. What scripture? What scripture? What God's teaching you? What is, you helping him, what is God helping you to understand? And then, then David Hill started talking me, to me about serving. And one day he called me up and said, hey, Charlie, you're not going to believe this. You're going on a mission trip. I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, that's what Christians do. Christians go on mission trips. I'm like, get out of here. You're kidding. He goes, no. He says, we're going we're gonna to smuggle some tools and some material into Mexico. He says, we're going to drive straight from Houston into the heart of Mexico. He says, I've found this community in Mexico that this group of people are becoming they're Christians and they don't have a church and that shouldn't happen on our watch. So we're going to drive into Mexico. We're going to live on the, on the river in tents for a couple of weeks. And when we leave, we're going we're gonna, to, our last thing there is we're going to worship with this group of people. It's going to be amazing. You're never going to experience anything like this. I did that. And we loaded up, and we went into Mexico with three or four other guys, and we, we built a church, and it was an amazing worship service. And you know what? This last week or, or Saturday, when I started looking at this, I, I thought, you know, it's interesting. wonder if God used David Hill, a name that you, you have never heard of till now. wonder if God used David Hill in my life, not a pastor, to give me a love of reading God's Word, standing on God's Word, applying it to my life, and then serving him in missions in some other places. Karen came to faith in Christ six months after me. Karen's my wife, and, and she came to faith in Christ six months after me. And, and so I asked her about this, and she had two ladies, and I knew them, Madeline, Madeline Weatherall and Fern, uh, Fern Limloff. And, and so you probably never heard those names. They were just two ladies that quietly served in a local church. And Karen met Christ because of them, and they would meet with her in a conference room. She worked with them, and they would meet with her in a conference room, open up Scripture together, talk, disciple, and pray. The reason Her, her first Bible was a Bible that, that Madeline had bought for her. It seems like girls buy Bibles for their girlfriends, but men just tell you where to go get your Bible. And so I, I had to buy my own Bible, but, but she, and she still has that Bible. And the first, the first life group we did together, uh, it was this older couple, the Papools, and you probably never heard of their names. And they just did this life group. They'd seen a lot of seasons of marriage and raising kids, and, and we would meet with them with other couples we were all newlyweds, and they were teaching us how to be Christian husbands and Christian's wives. Christian wives. I'll never forget that. Never, so, somehow about life. Sometimes we forget, if we're honest, just to show appreciation to those who have spiritually contributed to our life. The second thing, the second thing is this, is there's, there's, when we know that we're in trouble, is there's immediate suspicion of other people's motives. There's immediate suspicion of other people's motives. We just, we just do enough life to where all of a sudden we become cynical. All of a sudden we become just cynical and we become bitter and we, we, we become not, not trusting people that we once were. And as a result of that, we immediately question somebody's motives. And see, this is what has happened. They weren't only taking advantage of Paul and taking him for granted, but now they're, they're questioning his motives. See, they couldn't deal with his actions because his actions were like flawless. I mean, he did everything that he was supposed to do. Isn't that frustrating to you 
sometimes in relationships when you're dealing with someone that may be a little bit immature or spiritually immature and what you're doing is exactly right and what you're doing is exactly the way you're supposed to be doing it and then they start questioning your motives. Oh, I know why you're really doing that. I know what's going on behind the scenes. See, as a result of that, they couldn't question Paul's actions, but they started questioning his motives. Oh, we know the reason you're not taking a salary from us. Because, I mean, actually, it's, it's, your, it's, your, it's your game plan to be deceptive. You're not taking a salary for us because you're taking up this offering for the Jerusalem church. And what you're going to do, you're going to pocket all the money. And so as a result of that, you're going to appear to be humble. You're going to appear to be a servant, and you're really not. You're going to exploit us. You're going to use this for your financial gain. And so look at this. Paul's frustrated, verse, 5, verse 16. Now, granted, I did not burden you. Yet sly as I am, I took you by, in by deceit. Did I take advantage of you um, by any of those I sent you? I urged Titus to go, and I sent the brother with him. This is fascinating. So Paul was sending the offering to Jerusalem. He sent Titus and a financial accountability partner. Uh, there were more than two people in the room. There were more than two people counting the money. There were more than two people taking the offering to Jerusalem so that you would know that there was nothing improper going on. And Titus didn't take advantage of you, did he? Didn't we walk in the same spirit, in the same footsteps? And so there are people, listen, I'm telling you, there are people out there that regardless of what you do, they're going to believe the worst about you. Regardless of what you do, they're going to question your motives. This is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, I believe the best in you. The least you could do is believe the best in me. I mean, Paul is coming to this place, helping them to understand relationships. And listen, I know in marriage, like a lot of times at wedding ceremonies, we read what we call as Christians the love chapter, which is 1 Corinthians 13. Love is as a definition of love. And yes, that's an important chapter to read at weddings because it defines love. But we just need to remember the context that it was written in. The context as it was written in was with church people in church. And Paul is trying to help them understand, hey, when you deal with each other, this is what love is. And at the end, he comes down and he says, I just need to let you know, love always trusts, love always hopes, love always endures, love always perseveres. Isn't it true? We need to love someone and we need them to love us back, right? And isn't it true? We need someone to believe the best in us and hope for the best of us. We need someone that can trust us. And this is what Paul, this is what Paul is talking about. And Paul is saying, you know what? I trusted you. And I'm still trusting you unless you prove me otherwise. And I believe that, that you are real until you prove otherwise. Titus 1.15, it says, to the pure, everything is pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, guess what? Nothing's, nothing's pure. Everything's bad. In fact, both mind and conscience have been defiled. Have you come to the place in life that you're so cynical, that you're so bitter, that you cannot trust like anyone? You think everyone has, in, has, has hidden motives or hidden agenda to hurt you. The third thing is this that Paul says that we need to get concerned is when we develop a sour disposition. We just have a sour disposition. We no longer have love. We no longer have joy. We no longer have peace. Fact is, Paul is saying, I mean, it's just so harsh to hear. But Paul looks at this group of people and says, you know what? I just thought by you coming into a relationship with Jesus Christ would have made you a sweeter person, a more grace-filled person, a more loving person, a more compassionate person. When you look at the Bible, you realize the teaching of Scripture is just like preoccupied. 
with how to be kind and how to be humble and how to be grace-giving, how to be gracious, how to be compassionate, how to be generous, how to be faithful, how to be peace-loving. And he's coming to this place. He's just, a, he's just frustrated. Verse 19, have you been thinking all along that, that we were defending ourselves to you? No, in the sight of God, we are speaking in Christ and everything, dear friends, is for your building up. We're not trying to tear you down. We are literally trying to build you up. For I fear perhaps when I come, I will not find you to be what I want. And you may not find me to be what you want. Perhaps there will be quarreling, jealousy, angry outbursts, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. And so all of a sudden, just real quickly, it's like he tries to brush over this. Paul gives them eight unholy uh, attitudes are signs of, of spiritual immaturity. And he says, so here, here are the eight, just real quickly, and then we'll move on. We'll look at the last principle. But he just lists these eight just real quickly, and he says there, there's going to be quarreling. Like quarreling is like this red flag to us that it's that group of, per, group of people of that person that everywhere they go, they go, there's a quarrel. Everywhere they go, there's an argument. And they always fight. They always argue over the little things, not the important things, not the big things. It's just like no matter what happens, it can be something little, and there's always this argument. There's always this fight. There's always this quarrel. Oh, and he said there can be jealousy. There can be jealousy in people that are jealous of other people that get something that they wanted or have a better situation or things are turning out better for them. And as a result of that, they carry this issue of jealousy about why can't I have that and why can't that be given to me? And then he uses this term, he says, angry outburst. To where all of a sudden that this something happens in their life and Paul is reminding them that the fruit of the Spirit is like self-control. A spiritually mature person, an emotionally mature person comes to that place so they're able to control like some of their emotions. And Paul uses this term of just an angry outburst. I mean, when you look at this, it's the issue of controlling your temper. And I know, I know, I know. There's some of you in this room that will say, well, you know what? I struggle with controlling my temper. Temper. Well, you know what? I understand that. Sometimes I do too. And coming to this place to you understand about these issues of angry outbursts, uh, an immature person, can be, they can be sweet and gracious and peace-loving and faithful, and then something little happens, and all of a sudden it's like a personality change real quickly. And they're not even like the same person. There was a man once that said, well, you know what? I know I lose my temper but it's, it's over in like two minutes. I mean, I get angry. I have an outburst. It lasts about two minutes, and it's done. And I'm like, well, so is a tornado, right? And somebody has to clean up after it. Somebody has to pick up the pieces after it. And then he says selfish ambitions to where they develop all of these factions in the world, whether it's, whether it's white collar versus blue collar, labor versus management, or liberal versus conservative, Republican versus Democrat, feminist versus uh, chauvinist, you know, Raider versus Bronco, whatever it is. And then they bring that, they bring that into the church, and they bring that into the spiritual world. And then he says, hey, this issue of slander and gossip, it's easier, listen, I'm just telling you, it's easier to deal with slander than gossip, just so, we, just so we understand that. At least slander is in your face. At least slander, you know what they're saying about you, but gossip, gossip, gossip is done in secret. Gossip is done behind the scenes. God, listen, gossip destroys people. 
Because how can you ever deal with gossip? How can you ever confront that? And then there's this issue of just like this spiritual arrogance to where no matter what you do, you can't live up to their sense of, of what it means to be a good Christian or any of those other things. And then he, he uses this word like disorder. And so Paul is trying to help them to understand that, that immature Christians have like this sour and mean disposition and, and they're, they're not happy or they don't carry joy and they're just, they're just sour. The fourth and the last thing that we need to be aware of and we need to adjust to is this continued participation in the sins of the flesh. And so I told you, Paul identified two groups of people. People of the flesh, people that were more in love with the world than the spirit, uh, people of the flesh that were going back to an old way of life. This concerned Paul and then immature Christians. So now all of a sudden he deals, talks to people of the flesh. Verse 21, he says, I fear that when I come, my God will again <coughs> humiliate me in your presence. And I will grieve for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the immoral impurity, sexual immorality, sensuality that they practice. So the, the, the Corinthian church is made up of all new believers. And in Corinth, Corinth was this place. It was, it was a seaport town where two major trade routes came through, whether it's military or commercial trade routes. Uh, it was, I mean, Corinth was like San Francisco, Atlantic City, and Las Vegas all rolled in, into one. Fact is, it was said of their day that the sailors loved to go to the seaport of Corinth because they had so many prostitutes that were there. And that the society had gotten to the place that they did not believe that sexual immorality was like a sin. It was like impure, that there was, there was like no right and wrong. There was no absolute truth. And so when you look at this word sensuality, it was like this rebellious spirit that had lost all sense of, of shame or conviction in this area. And so the Corinthians had come to this place to where they no longer knew what it meant to like repent. And so this is Paul's concern. Paul's concern is you're going back to an old way of life that God saved you out of it just because it's, it's like comfortable to you. And Paul is worried and says, I'm worried that you've ever repented of your sins. Repentance means this. It means a change of mind that leads to a change of a, a, dic, uh, a direction. It means a, a change of mind that leads to a change of way of life. Simon Peter writes about this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. He says, dear friends, it's so important we're going to close with this. He said, dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from the sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day that he visits. And so Paul is helping them understand about this flash that even when we become Christians, our, our soul is redeemed and we're going to heaven, but we still have to deal with the flesh. We still have to deal with the flesh, so the flesh does not drive us. And, and he uses his terms, and he uses his terms, exiles and foreigners. In other words, he's helping them understand, guess what? This is not your home. This is not your home, and you're not going to feel comfortable here. You are not going to feel comfortable here. Now, listen, the only way that I can re relate to this and help you understand this, because it's such an important concept to grab in church, is this. is this, There's a saying, and the saying is pretty popular in Texas, and I think most of you have heard it, is this, that you can take the boy out of Texas, but you cannot take Texas out of the boy. You've ever heard that? Well, I'm living proof of that. You can, take, you can take the boy out of Texas, but guess what? You cannot take Texas out of the boy. And sometimes, I'm telling you, I've been here 26 years. I'm still learning, and sometimes I do feel like an exile and a foreigner here. 
I mean, and I, I revert back to some of my Texas ways, right, and some of the words and how I pr- pronunciate them. I look at you guys when I say some words, and you're like looking at me. Did he say? Did he say that or what? That word only has two syllables, and I think he used like six, or those are actually three words, and he put them all into one. And are, are you sure about that? And so some of it's the way that I, some of it's the way that I talk, some of it's my comfort. Listen, I am telling you. I am way more comfortable in like just Levi's and an old pair of boots and, and a bag full of cheeseburgers than I am at some high-end restaurant. I am more comfortable like being out in the woods and being out in, in some place than I am at being at some high-dollar place. Fact is, I got my preaching boots on now, and I probably shouldn't even tell you this, but these boots, last time I was in Texas, Mark Job, who is Kerry Job's dad, uh, bought these boots for me on the way to the airport, and so the tops... It's like the Texas flag, right? Because Mark said these boots are more anointed than any other boot that I could ever wear. And so it has the Texas flag and it has the state star, you know, the seal. And then on the, on the sole, I know this is horrible, on the sole, it actually has the cannon that says come and take it. And I know for some of you that's offensive and I'm sorry. Fact is, Mark bought me these boots on the way to the airport. And I, I wore them. I was so proud of them. I'm like, I felt like a five-year-old. I'm wearing them home. And so I, I, <laughs> so I wore them directly to the airport. And I went through TSA. you got to take boots off, right? I'm putting these boots on at TSA. And so if you don't wear boots, sometimes you lift up your leg and, you know, you pull them on. I do that. I didn't know what the soles said. I had not looked at the soles. And so this man screams at me and says, Oh, you Texans, you're a bunch of arrogant jerks. And I'm like... What are you talking about? He said, what do you mean what am I talking about? I'm talking about the soles of your boots. And I said, what do they say? You know what they say. No, I don't. Yes, you do. And so I looked at him and I go, oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, right now, Karen and I were watching a show. I'll try, to pronu- uh, I'll try to pronounce it so that you'll, understand, you'll hear it. Lone Star Law. And so it's on the Discovery Channel. It's about these Texas game wardens. And so it's helping Karen understand me because she still has a list. In preaching, she'll say, hey, you know what? The T's really silent in that word. You need to pronunciate that word this way. And you shouldn't say it this way. And some of those other things. And so I, str- I struggle with that whole thing. Can, man, just one more thing because this is just confession time. This may be the most controversial thing I've ever said through COVID. I have never had a slopper. And I, ha- I have, like, no desire. I don't even understand the concept. Why would you soak a hamburger in something? I think a hamburger, I think a hamburger can stand on its own. And listen, I know that's controversial. Believe me. I've, I, believe me, I've had conversations Saturday night, morning at noon, uh, at 9 o'clock this morning, probably more conversations coming. And people are saying, of all the controversial things you said through COVID, now you've told us you don't have, you've never had a slopper. I don't understand that. Why? Because I wasn't raised with that. I mean, I wasn't raised with that. I'd rather had fried fish, a fish with slap your mama on it. And so, uh, <laughs> and sometimes I revert back to my Texas roots if I'm not careful. That's what Paul's point. The soul is redeemed. Sometimes we revert back to the flesh. Old way of life. Paul makes this statement. He says, well, let's just read it. He says this. He says, and I urge you to abstain from the sinful desires that wage war against your soul. 
Christian circles, it's easier for us to say things like, I'm struggling with sin. I'm dealing with sin. I'm dealing with temptation. No, you're not. There is a war going on. And there is an adversary. And he is waging war against your soul. It is not something you're struggling with. It is not something you're... Listen, if you are dealing with it, you'll lose every time. If you try to deal with it, you will lose every time. Paul's concern. A lot of people say, you know what, I'm spiritually strong enough. I can deal with this. No, you can't. This is not something you're dealing with. There is a war going on. And the adversary is waging a war. That's why it is so important for us to come into community. That's why it's so important to appreciate spiritually the things that people have contributed in our life. That's why we need the David Hills. That's why we need the Madeline Weatheralls. That's why we come into community and we build relationships with one another so people can encourage us, can support us in this war that we're in. This is Paul's deal. This is Paul's warning to them. Paul is like saying, let's finish well. Let's run this race. Let's finish well. Let's not let, allow anything to knock us out of this race because we all desire to hear those words. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's why we're here. That's why we gather. That's why we worship. That's why we open up the scriptures so that we can run this race well and hear those words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes?